So welcome to the webcast, Autism Office Hours. Um, Autism Office Hours is an online question and answer session that offers support and practical information for families to apply in their daily lives. The team of professionals will be answering questions that have been submitted by the autism community on various themes. And this project is being coordinated by Jamie Swalby and Debbie Montana. I'm Laurieann King. I'm a guest facilitator today. I work on the autism family and provider resource team, and I am the parent of a young man with autism. And the title of our webcast today is Understanding Guilt in Parents of Children with Autism. And I will briefly introduce the presenters today, and then I'll let them tell uh, more about themselves. So. Uh, we, today, we are honored to have Tori Everhard, a social worker with the Autism Program's Parent Home Training Program, Dr. Julia Oppenheimer, the uh, CDD's Director for Early Childhood Clinical Services, and Amy Rodriguez, a graduate of Partners in Policymaking and a licensed mental health counselor in the community. So I'm going to let you, if you can all tell us a little bit about yourselves, starting with Tori. All right, so I'm Tori Everhart, and I um, work with Lorianne and Debbie at UNM at the Center for Development and Disability, specifically in the autism programs, um, with a program called Parent Home Training. Um, and in Parent Home Training, we serve families who have um, a child under the age of five um, who has autism, and so we provide support and education um, in families' homes um, or via telehealth now. Um, but anyway, as Lorianne said, I, my formal education is as a social worker, but my practical experience um, for the past 20 years is working both in early intervention, um, Part C, and uh, with the autism programs, um, supporting families who have uh, a young child or children um, with a developmental disability or now specifically with autism. And so that's me in a nutshell. Um, um, and I, I am Julia Oppenheimer. I'm a psychologist and I also work at the Center for Development and Disability um, with Lorianne and, and Debbie and Tori. Um, I oversee our early childhood evaluation program, um, which is a program that does evaluations for children with developmental concerns and especially for a big part of what we do is seeing kids who have um, suspicion of autism. Um, and we do a lot of autism diagnosis for kids who are three and under. Um, and I, I used to work as a clinician in that program and now I, I oversee the administrative pieces of it as well. Thank you. And Amy? I think you might be muted, Amy. Okay, we um, will we'll, uh, continue and if we can get Amy back on, we will. Um, but I, I just want to thank you all so much for, for being here today and, uh, and helping us um, tackle, I think, a, a really, as a parent, um, 
on the journey myself, I think guilt has been a big topic in my personal life. And, um, and in talking with other parents, it seems to be a theme. So I, I was not surprised that that was definitely a theme that came up from the community. And I wanted to share some of these questions and then, um, and then see what you guys thought, if you had some ideas or thoughts about that. So the, the first question is, dealing with children's hygiene issues during COVID is even more of a concern because of having to keep hands clean, et cetera. I have a preteen who is high level functioning. His body is going through changes and I do not know how to explain it to him. I'm a single mother and I do not know how to approach this. I've been trying to explain hygiene to him since we are starting to have an odor issue. He does not like the odor. I feel guilty because it makes me look like a bad parent. So I don't, and I see that um, Amy has just joined us again. <laughs> Amy, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Oh. I apologize. I'm not sure what happened. <laughs> no worries. Do you mind introducing yourself? And then we'll just jump right into that first question. Sure. I'm Amy Rodriguez, and I'm a licensed mental health counselor at Christian Counseling Professionals. And I'm also a graduate of Partners in Policymaking. Great. Thank you so much for being here today, you all. Um, so the first question I was just reading, Amy, was, um, uh, regarding hygiene and a, a parent writing in saying that she's got a, a young man who is uh, a preteen and she's been trying to explain hygiene to him since he's starting to have an odor issue and he doesn't like deodorant and she feels guilty because it makes her feel like a bad parent. Um, do you all have any thoughts on that? I think one of my first thoughts and what I hear in that question um, is I hear two issues. Um, one, a need for programming to help this preteen um, and help the family in general um, address the issues of hygiene and changing changes in body um, due to age. Um, and then the other, the other um, issue that I hear is um, the parents' feelings um, and how to address those. And I think, you know, one is, is pretty concrete with all teenagers or preteens, whether um, they have a diagnosis or not, we address this and how we address it might be different and look different. Um, and that's fairly concrete. Um, everyone goes through that. Um, sort of gaining that knowledge and that training. Um, but I think less concrete and um, more difficult to talk about and more difficult to ask support for are these feelings of guilt. Um, and so um, I think I just hear two, um, two separate um, ideas to address there. That's great, Tori. And I love like just thinking about the complexity of that. And, um, and it's true, like the, the thought of finding um, programming and tools to help the young man to be successful, that is definitely 
an important route, but I think as parents, that, that piece that seems to sometimes get overlooked, which you pointed out so beautifully, is that, that feeling of guilt and just feeling like, you know, I'm not doing enough or how, you know, I, I'm not doing a good enough job. So uh, thank you for pointing out both of those. And I think, uh, I think when we start, when I, when I start um, hearing about guilty feelings or hearing parents report guilt, I think one of the first um, things that a parent reports to me is, is that guilt makes you feel alone. Um, and one of the first things that comes to my mind as a professional in that situation is that it's quite the opposite. Um, is uh, guilt, the guilt that parents feel in that whether they feel inadequate, they're not doing enough or they're not doing the right thing, is that this um, is very common to, to all parents. Um, in similar situations and in different situations, um, guilt um, is very common. Um, and I think often when you are the person who's feeling that guilt um, because of various um, factors and processes involved in guilt, you often feel that you are alone in that. Mm. Um, Yeah. Oh, thank you for saying that. And just to, to add on to what Tori was saying, um, you know, I'm, I'm coming to this from the early childhood perspective, so I don't necessarily specialize in adolescence, but it is um, a major transitional stage and it's hard on parents and children or, or teens, tweens, um, with or without autism. And, and so I would also kind of normalize that stress, the conversations about body changes and um, smelling bad are very uncomfortable for all of us. And then when you add on the overlay of an autism diagnosis and you have a child who may be um, functioning at varying levels in different domains um, and maybe in some ways might be at um, their kind of appropriate age level and in some ways might have some delays in how they understand things or think about things, it's even harder to understand this big transition. And, and so kind of for the parent, I agree that guilt piece is really hard. And I, I think really, and I work with, with parents without the um, that overlay of autism too, there's a lot of guilt in parenting regardless um, and worrying about people judging you and not understanding what's going on for your child. Um, and so we're just remembering that you love your child, you're doing the best you can. It doesn't make you a bad parent because your child is not wearing deodorant um, and kind of picking your battles and, and being kind to yourself. Because I think with guilt, we as parents start to kind of beat ourselves up when we're really trying hard. And, and then you add, like in the beginning, they talked about the COVID piece. I think under COVID conditions, everything gets exacerbated. So everything feels harder and a bigger issue. And there's a lot of underlying stress that comes out in different ways. And so we need to all even more be kind to ourselves in COVID. Uh. So beautifully said, um, both of you. And, and just thinking of, 
you know, when I hear as a parent, when I'm listening to a broadcast like this, I go, oh, I'm not the only one. I think that there is that. And I think also just that, that piece of, of being kind to yourself. And thank you. Thank you very much. Amy, do, do you have anything to add? Um, so what I, I kind of am going to the, how can we solve, you know, solve this issue? What are some ways that we can, can help him um, kind of see, um, you know, the importance of now that he's older, you know, that he um, has to take care of his hygiene more. Um, wondering, you know, what is it that he doesn't like about deodorant? Like, is it the texture? Is it the smell? Um, rolling it on? Like, what is it that he doesn't like about the deodorant? And then um, knowing that we can, you know, take him to the store where he can pick it out and let him know there's a spray, there's a roll on, there's you know, there's a clear one, there's, you know, there's another one, like letting him know that there's several different options um, and kind of finding out what it is that he doesn't like, you know, is it a sensory thing? Is it the, the smell of the deodorant? And just letting him know that there's plenty of options and that he can go and pick out which one he would prefer. Ah, that's great. And I, and I like how you guys are pointing out as well um, just thinking about that, the young man's perspective and, and giving choices and especially for a preteen, that self-determination and uh, is, is such a great tool to give choices and, yeah. um, and it can be very powerful. So thank you. Thanks, Amy. Mm -hmm. um, Okay, so that this next question, and I'm guessing that this is um, something, a question that will resonate with many parents right now in the place that we're in is, I am looking for advice on ways to teach a kid about personal space. My five-year-old does not understand that people need their own space. He's so friendly and he likes to stand so close to people and touch them. He's currently obsessed with babies, so he tries to hug strangers' babies whenever he sees them. Of course, now with COVID, he will not, he, we will not let him do that, so he, it turns into a huge meltdown. I feel guilty because I cannot make him understand, and I'm the reason for his meltdown. So, um, any thoughts on that? And, you know, and I think... You know, just acknowledging that this is such a tricky time right now because we have the pre-COVID world and and trying to figure out the social rules in that world, and now we're in a new world. And I I don't even know the social rules in this. I'm not sure I know of the social rules in either world, but it's uh, it, it's like having to learn new rules all over again. So, but I I am struck by this last statement of I feel guilty because I cannot make him understand, and I. I'm the reason for the meltdown. So any thoughts on that? Um, this is Amy. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, since he is at such a young age, you know, what way can, can this be approached in a way that he can really understand? And I'm wondering if maybe um, a social story um, <clears throat> about, um, you know, the importance of keeping our space, especially during this time. Um, and also, um, things such as I know that there is a COVID coloring book um, now that explains, um, you know, what COVID is and the different ways that we have to go about, um, um, 
you know, being, um, being safe. And so I'm wondering if maybe something like that would be helpful, you know, at five years old, that's such a young age, um, to try to explain to them. Um, and so I'm just wondering if maybe, you know, social story, coloring book, different things like that, if maybe those items would help explain it to him. Those are great ideas. Yeah, I really like the idea. Uh, yeah, I think so too, Lauriana. The social story I think is great. Um, I think um, it's, um, you know, despite of, in spite of COVID, um, it's actually um, maybe a little bit easier to teach uh, social distancing right now because it's super popular and trendy. Um, and if you're going into the community, there's lots of modeling right now for distancing. And so um, regardless of the social awareness, um, teaching kind of that hierarchy of, okay, these, this is your immediate family. It's okay to touch and hug in this way. These are our friends and acquaintances. It's okay to touch and greet in this way. And these are strangers. And this is how we approach and interact with strangers. But everyone is doing that distance thing. And while we might normally not teach six feet, we would probably teach three feet um, of distancing for acquaintances and, and strangers. Um, I, I do think the modeling is there in the community if you're to watch um, people in, in public spaces. So I think that's nice. Um, I think one of um, visual supports are always, um, a great tool to use with young children who have autism. And one idea that I um, got from one of my families who had a young child who had difficulties understanding um, how to interact with people in public environments, specifically strangers. Um, he too um, wanted to approach strangers in a very friendly and touching manner. And so um, mom ended up keeping um, a little visual support on her keychain, and it was a picture of two people who had a distance between them. And it had a little Velcro flip on it, so most of the time it was closed, and the picture wasn't visual, wasn't um, apparent. But when when they were in, for example, when this uh, mom and child were were store in line. He could sense that that her child was going to approach um, a stranger or was too close to someone in line. She would flip open this picture and show. Oh, that's such a great idea, Tori, to, to carry that visual with you. And, and I think to, uh, this situation beforehand into teaching him what what he could do and and what was appropriate. But just having that visual cue was a great tool in the moment. That's great. Those are great ideas. Yeah. And, um, you know, adding, I like what you were saying at the end, Tori, about having kind of substitute behaviors or kind of coping strategies that he can use. Um, and, you know, something that a preschool teacher um, was telling me about is like using um, very familiar objects to help kids understand what six feet is. So if they like dogs, you know, keep two dogs 
length away as long as you don't have very small dogs um, or keep a car distance away or um, you know something that's about six feet um, or you can do like two arm distances so giving them like a visual of how far you need to be which I think we all need in some ways because we're all learning social cues in these new um, circumstances and having to stand farther away and so there's lots of opportunities also to talk about when people are or aren't following the rules. Um, there's also, there's, um, there's a Sesame Street episode about COVID um, and I haven't watched it in detail, but it might have some um, information with puppets about um, keeping social distance. And there's a lot of books and resources online and videos about keeping social distancing. I believe there's a Daniel Tiger episode about it too. Um, I don't know if there's a place to kind of collect these resources for the communities that um, you serve, Lorianne or Debbie, but um, I, I can kind of pull together resources for young children if that would be helpful. Um, and you don't want to overload him with those, but even, you know, if you notice him kind of going into like giving signals that he's going to go in and touch, giving him something else to do. Maybe he can have a baby doll that he, instead of touching somebody else's baby, he can touch that baby. Or maybe, um, you know, if there's um, kind of like with the deodorant, if there's some kind of sensory piece that he's seeking to, to give him some kind of sensory stimulation that he can go to, to calm himself instead of going up to people. And I, I think just a lot of repetition is going to end up being important. And, um, preparing him, like when you go into the supermarket, remind him before you go. Um, remember, we're not touching. And if you want to touch, do this instead or things like that. But it's, it's hard. And then, you know, with the meltdowns and feeling like you're, you're causing that, you know, you're, as a parent, you're not causing that. You are doing what a parent needs to do and setting limits and keeping him safe and others safe. And this behavior is happening because of it. And so that goes back to the kindness to yourself that how you think of it as a parent, how much you blame yourself when it's you doing parenting things, that's what you need to do. So don't kind of beat yourself up about it, but reframe it for yourself too. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say, I, I think, you know, when, when I'm talking with families and, and issues like this come up and the guilt comes up about, I'm not, um, I'm not, uh, I'm causing this or I'm, I'm doing this. Um, and really, I think that's a good nice time to revisit the diagnosis of autism and reflect it back to this is um, one of these social um, differences are part of the core deficits of autism and this is the diagnosis and this is um, you know this is why we're here and this is what you're learning and this is what we're teaching you're you're becoming a teacher of these skills and sort of uh, putting to that process I think is is often helpful um, that you are not causing this and you are doing your best as his teacher for these differences that he's experiencing. Oh, I, I gave a big sigh of relief and I'm gonna give it again. Just hearing you all talk, it's, it's so helpful as a parent. I think that combination of getting tools for the, the, the individual, but also um, tools for yourself and self-care and that combination is so, so important. So thank you, thank you so much. 
Um, okay, the next question. Um, after my daughter was diagnosed, I began to think about that glass of red wine that I had at my brother's wedding before I even knew I was pregnant. I feel guilty taking all the blame for his diagnosis. Was I being punished? I feel that one. I think in parent home training, I've heard this frequently um, and maybe even more frequently during my time in early intervention when I worked with a, a wider variety of developmental disabilities in young children. Um, the guilt that mothers um, experience because there was something that they perceive they shouldn't have done during their pregnancy or even before they became aware that they were pregnant um, is really big. Um, and I think, I think really that's based on um, their perception that, um, uh, or, or the lack of knowledge that sometimes these things happen, that there are these differences that, um, that happen during conception and in, in nature that are uncontrolled, uncontrollable. Um, and so again, um, reflecting to them that this is a, a, a commonly voiced concern uh, amongst parents um, and that they are not alone um, in those thoughts. Um, and I think on a practical side, referring them back to, to the research that we know that there is no evidence that uh, one drink early on in pregnancy would have caused this. Referring uh, specifically regarding autism, referring back to the knowledge that we do know that there are no um, known, um, that this having a, a drink, um, early in pregnancy it is not a known factor in the development of autism. Thank you, Tori. Um, I, I don't know that there's all that much I can add, except that I also have heard this in so many different contexts, both, as you said, with um, parents whose children have autism and other developmental delays. I know I've experienced it with my own children, whether they have anything diagnosable or not. I think we as parents and especially as mothers, if you like carried your child and felt that responsibility that we feel culturally with every, you know, thinking about everything you eat, everything you drink, everything you do, um, you know, it, it's a lot of pressure and I don't, you know, the, the line about, am I being punished? I, I think sometimes we give ourselves too much power. I, I don't personally think that you are being punished for doing something that you didn't even know you were doing. I, I don't believe in that. But for a parent who does feel that way, I think talking to somebody about it and talking about why you might feel like you're being punished for that could be really supportive because that's just such a hard thing to keep having in your head and having to deal with and, and not uncommon. I think many, many of us think those things and feel that way. So, which is not that 
it, not to say that it's correct. It's just kind of a tendency. Um, so I, I feel for the person who wrote this question and for the many other people who could have written it um, and the research doesn't support it, science doesn't support it, and yet the guilt is still there. And that's mm -hmm. normal and not great. Yeah, I think, Julia, it's a, it's a, what I've seen um, for parents to find some relief in, in that guilt specifically related that to that is obtaining some kind of concrete information from a doctor, whether it's your child's doctor or your OB or your personal physician, obtaining that concrete um, knowledge um, and then finding support in um, in your own family or with other parents who have experiences similar to you, um, I think can be extraordinarily helpful um, in that realizing um, that not only was um, this um, a guilt sort of an unhealthy, irrational type of guilt, um, but that it's very common and that there are others like me who have experienced that. And I think finding that commonality and commonality in other parents um, can be extremely relieving and comforting. Maybe even more so than the concrete knowledge of a, of a doctor telling you or another professional telling you that there's simply no evidence um, in your belief. Yeah, I agree that I think that support piece is very, very important in knowing that other people experience it. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. Amy, do you have anything else to add? Um, I just want to add that, you know, as a, as a parent um, of a child with autism as well, that, um, you know, I feel like we're always going to question um, ourselves on, you know, did we, is there something we could have done differently or is there something we did do? And Lorianne, as, as the parent of a, of a um, young man with autism, is this something that you still experience um, even as he's older now? I feel like maybe this is something that will always just continue to do? Do you feel like you experience this as well? That's, you know, it's a great question. And it feels like, you know, I, I do think it's um, for sure an ongoing theme. And, um, and, uh, and in a lot of different ways. I mean, I think um, it's, and I love that you turned it, the question on to me, Amy, because <laughs> I think the, the interesting thing is that as um, as an adult, when I you know when I get feedback from him on maybe some of the the services or the therapies that he had when he was younger, and I mean ironically, I have made this like pact with myself when I when he was younger, I would never feel guilty that I tried my best, and but when I get sometimes feedback about you know some of those services then I'm like why you know why did we go down that road why did we and um and I think it's a conversation it's just interesting with him now as a self-advocate to get that in a different in a different light um and uh and so um I just you know I try to I think that what you all have pointed out so beautifully of you know number one of 
of getting that person's support. So, you know, in this case, it's like, you know, I get support from my son and whatever way that he needs around that. And then support for myself. And um, I, I have definitely sought and needed and been grateful for the support in various different ways. Everything from a parent support group to counseling. Um, uh, so yeah, I appreciate that question very much. Yeah. And Amy, I see that too, that, you know, guilt similar to grieving, I think is constantly both revolving and evolving. Um, and I've, I've seen that with families I work with is that, um, you can pass one mountain, um, but you anticipate further climbs in the future um, and so just knowing realizing um, and anticipating more to come um, can be helpful um, in, in uh, dealing with things as they come come up absolutely Tori and I think the um, that what you all have talked about is in terms of just normalizing it. And just that always is, is a relief to me is to just hear that I'm not the only one and, uh, and acknowledging that, you know, I can get support for myself around it. That was something as a parent, I think that was really um, that I had to learn because I, I felt like I could, you know, work really hard to get support for him, but that piece for myself was definitely something I, I did not prioritize for a very long time, so. Okay, next question. Um, my adult son was diagnosed late in life. We focused so much on his anxiety that we kept sending him to specialists for his anxiety. During this time, the autism was never mentioned or suspected. Finally, the last specialist he saw mentioned autism. We felt guilty because we should have known better. Thoughts on that? Um, this is Amy. I think it's um, important for us to know that, um, you know, there are a lot of um, characteristics of autism that um, may mimic other, um, other issues, whether it's um, ADHD or, um, again, anxiety, depression, um, uh, you know, learning disabilities, um, different things like that, um, that they all have, you know, the same characteristics. Um, and, you know, it's not always easy to um, have it diagnosed. Um, and, of course, you know, as a parent, um, I think we, um, again, we feel like we should have, should have recognized or that we should have known or that we didn't do enough research or, you know, something like that. But um, just knowing that it does have a lot of characteristics of other things and that it's not easily diagnosed um, and, um, you know, that there's, even if they, you know, you feel like maybe he was diagnosed later in life, that there's still a lot of, uh, resources and a lot of services, um, that they can receive as an adult that can help them, uh, you know, be their best self. And, um, so yeah, that's just where I stand on that. 
Nice. That's really helpful, Amy. Really, really helpful. Um, and it sounds like this family in particular continued to seek out support for their child. So, you know, from that perspective, they were doing everything they could do. And I, I think in that language of guilt, you know, and self-blame, it's not really a parent's role to diagnose their child. It's a parent's role to get the child the support that they need and the help that they need. And it sounds like they really try to do that to the best of their abilities. And, um, you know, also kids at different ages with or without autism look very different. And so sometimes it can be much easier to see a diagnosis or to kind of tease it out of everything else that's going on at a certain point or a certain age versus earlier um, or later. So um, mm -hmm. I, I hope that that perspective can allay some of the guilt. Nice. Yeah. Julia, that's what I hear when I hear that question is I, I hear that the primary symptom was the anxiety and I hear um, in the question how much work they, they did on addressing the anxiety from an early age. And, and what, what then I think about is um, how frequently we work with um, families who have a young child who's been diagnosed with autism, um, but the parents are not accepting of the diagnosis um, at that point. And, and so what we always emphasize, the, the importance in those situations um, is that the parents are working on addressing um, what the delays or differences are rather than addressing the autism as a diagnosis. Um, and so with families who are not um, uh, believing in the diagnosis of autism, we can still address the communication delays, we can address the social differences. Um, and in parent home training, it always says that that's not the, um, what we are addressing are your goals. And so, um, regardless of diagnosis. Um, and so I, I would just um, want to reassure that parent that it really seems like they were addressing the primary concern that they that their child was experiencing. Um, and, and, and like Julia said, it's not their job to diagnose. And, and um, you know, I, I hear further that maybe they think they went to the wrong specialist or they didn't um, seek further opinions. Um, but, you know, reassuring them that the, the knowledge um, in terms of diagnosing autism has really advanced tremendously in the last decade or two decades, or even the last, it's constantly changing and getting better. Um, and so when they started, um, you know, I'm sure their path looked very different. Ah, oh, your answers are so reassuring. And I, and I, in this question, I agree that I'm hearing um, from this, this parent um, persistence and resilience, even within the question itself. So um, thank you all for, for your thoughtful answers on that. So our very last question is, sometimes after a long day of juggling so many things at home, I will sit down with a book. It seems harmless because my four-year-old is playing with her iPad. I feel guilty because I'm supposed to be engaging with her as much as possible. 
I can remember a lot of days like that when my son was younger, for sure. What do you all think about that question? Um, I love the question and I love that this um, parent was able to put that into words and what it reminds me of visually in my mind when I hear this question and I hear it, I've heard it from families in person um, is when you're on an airplane and the steward or stewardess um, tells you about the oxygen mask and you must put it on yourself first um, in order to help others because if you don't put it on yourself first you will be unable to help others and that just is my that is what comes into my mind when i hear that um, as a parent um, your sort of reserves and your capacities are depleted throughout the day and this parent clearly realizes and has a, a definite idea of what is going to recharge her i want to spend an hour reading and at that point i'll be able to come back and re-engage and i think that's so important um, and, and we often hear from families well they told me that i'm supposed to that i should have 40 hours of quality engagement um, and i think the key was quality um, if you're depleted um, and if you haven't engaged in some self-care practices you are not going to be able to give that quality um, and i think emphasizing um, that having a small chunk of quality engagement and enrichment with your child is so much more important than having a large quantity or a large chunk where you are physically and mentally exhausted and unable to to really fully um, participate in those moments um, that's a great advice that theme of self-care Great advice. Yeah, I completely agree. And that was so well said. And as you were reading that question, I'm sitting here um, talking to you guys while I know that my seven-year-old is on an iPad doing something totally unrelated to his schooling. So I also <laughs> want to normalize the guilt of, um, especially now with COVID, I think every parent I talk to, including myself, is like, oh my goodness, so much on engaged time. Um, whether with children um, have autism and there's that extra stress of the 40 hours a week um, or not. Um, so yes, to everything that Tori said. And, um, you know, it's also a good model and message to share with your children that you're not at their beck and call every single minute of their day. And they need to learn how to entertain themselves with the caveat that sometimes a child who has an autism diagnosis may be too happy to entertain themselves. So, um, but it is a, a good model to, to have. And just, you really do need to put your mask on, your oxygen mask before you can put on others as a kind of motto for life. Uh. And I think after that, there can be some negotiation. You know, if I was talking to this parent and we talked about self-care and the mask, you know, your airline mask first, and, and we went through that. And then we, you know, we might, I might suggest that there can be some negotiation in what's available for them to work on on their iPad. It doesn't have to be Candy Crush. Um, that 
you can put something on there that makes you feel better. Um, think about, you know, more educational type games and apps. Um, and, and that might just relieve some of it. And I love what Julia said is there are um, time our children need to learn um, how to entertain themselves for certain periods of time. Um, and I've kind of watched that evolve during my career. You know, when I first started, um, every, every child didn't have a device and every parent didn't have a smartphone. And we spent hours upon hours um, uh, creating um, teach type tasks, um, put-ins and um, file folders of um, and teaching kids to entertain themselves that way. And, you know, that has basically dropped off and it's devices now. And so that's just, I think, a, a sign of the times. But I think it's hugely valuable that a child can spend um, certain of chunks of time by themselves and with themselves. And when we add the autism diagnosis, we need to kind of monitor that and keep an eye on that and figure out how it's going and that it's not excessive. Um, but absolutely. Uh, that's great. I wish I had heard that advice when I was a younger parent. Thank you. Amy, anything else to add on that? Um, as a counselor, I, I always stress the importance of, of self-care to parents and especially those with um, any uh, parents with, um, you know, developmental disabilities or, or any children or even adult children um, with, you know, diagnosis like autism or ADHD, things like that. Um, you know, finding, finding what works most for you um for you know for self-care where you really feel whether it's you know reading a book taking a walk um just those things that really recharge you and again kind of like the the oxygen mask um you know they there's the saying that you know you can't pour from an empty cup and so you have to take care of yourself in order to be able to take care of your family and um i think you know i think we all struggle with that guilt of um, you know, feeling like we have to just keep going and that we can't take breaks or things like that. But just to remember that the importance of, of taking care of yourself and making sure that, you know, you're in a good mental state and that you're, you know, physically that you can sit down and rest. And I think that's, it's just really important for us to remind ourselves that it's okay. And that in the end, you know, our family's going to get the best, you know, the best, the best of us and get the best version of us um, once we're, um, you know, we're relaxed and we're doing things for ourselves and we're in a good mental state. Uh, I cannot imagine a better, a better statement to end this webcast on. Thank you, Amy. Thank you all. And um, so I, such an important conversation this morning. And thank you so much for sharing your very, very important perspectives and wisdom. Um, I, I know that, uh, Julia, you asked earlier about resources, and we will have some resources um, included with this webcast. So um, we'll make sure that that is on there, and any of the presenters can, um, you know, share with us if you have, you know, ideas that we can add to that. Um, but I, I really want to end, I think, more important than anything else, that message that you all just shared about uh, parents, you know, put your oxygen mask on first and and fill your cup up first and take care of yourselves. Um, and um, 
thank you all for the wisdom. I do also want to say thank you to Debbie Montana and Jamie Swalby for coordinating this important webcast and the Center for Development and Disability uh, for their support of this program. Thank you, Tori, Julia, Amy, for sharing your wisdom today.